Hey, what's up, everyone? Happy Easter to everyone here this morning. Hey, let's do this again. He is risen. That, that's great. We got a lot of young people in here, so I didn't know if I was going to get a response there, but I, I appreciate that. Hey, my name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great to see some new faces in the room here tonight, um, or this morning, excuse me. And uh, for some of us, we're coming in here and we're like, okay, we got our pastels on, we got a jacket on, and we usually wear a raggedy t-shirt, and we're ready to celebrate because this is like the day, right? This is resurrection day. Can I get an amen from some of those people? Okay, okay. And there's some of us uh, who are here in the room this morning, we're like, okay, it's Easter, so it's, it's a good thing to go to church on Easter, right? That's probably what I, that's probably what I should do on Sunday morning, right? And then there's others of you <clears throat> who are maybe here, and maybe you kind of got drugged here by someone, and you're like, okay, maybe this is the thing that I kind of got to uh, work through or kind of drudge through so I can get to the lunch later. And I get it. That's totally good. Lunch is going to taste good, I'm sure. And I've been drugged to plenty of church things in my day. And so no judgment here. It's all good. But I just wanted to, to kind of get a feel for where we're all from so that we can all uh, just honestly take a look at something uh, to just a second. Take an honest look at something together. Now, did you notice, as Jenna was reading just a second ago, that in that first uh, verse, it said the words far more. That God is able to do far more. <clears throat> now, uh, for those of you who don't know me, I have a five-year-old son named Nash, and uh, he is pretty cute in my opinion. Uh, you can judge for yourself. But uh, when my five-year-old Nash, uh, this last Christmas, when he opened his Christmas gifts, uh, he had about 10 of them. We got him way too many. We didn't spend that much, but he opened way too many. And he's opening all these things, and he got to the very end, and he opened this thing, uh, and it lit up his eyes, and it turned his world upside down. And it was a little uh, red transformer thing called Jet that's from the net uh, the Netflix cartoon series Super Wings. There's hardly any kids in the room, so I'm just assuming you have no idea what I'm talking about. But it's this little red jet, this plastic thing that costs like eleven dollars and fifty cents, and um, it transforms from like a guy who runs around to this little jet that flies through the air. And he saw this; it was his favorite show, and he saw it, and his life was complete. It was like the most amazing thing he could have. And he grabbed this thing and he held on to it. And let me tell you, for the next I don't know how long. This kid was running around with this thing. He would eat with it. Like he would go to the table and we would have to have him separate it from his hands and put it by his plate as he was eating. As soon as he got done and, uh, done eating, he would put it back into his hands again. As he would sleep, he would sleep cuddling this sharp plastic object at night. And then if his little brother or little sister tried to come up and take it from him, he would literally snarl and growl at them and go like this. And he would not give it to them because this toy was his everything for about three and a half weeks. And then uh, he now is obsessed with uh, getting a fire engine from Paw Patrol. That's just the reality. But, but, um, as I, as I walked through the living room the other day, I actually uh, was walking through by the toy room and I saw Jet that was sitting in a little toy box that we had. And I'm like, wait, no one has touched that thing in like a month, maybe two months. Nash doesn't even care about that thing. And, and I think that, that what we realize from that is, is that a kid, you always want more. You always want something far more. And I'm like judging him for this, like, wait a minute. I kind of do the same thing. Like when I was a kid, my parents bought us an Atari 5200. Ever heard of it before? I was playing Pac-Man and Dig Dug before many of you were born. And then uh, in the mid 80s came, the Nintendo came out. And I'm like, I gotta have that. And then finally, 
my, my parents, three years after everyone else's parents bought it for them, my parents bought me this Nintendo, and I'm like, yes, I finally have this. And then my neighbor, Kevin, went off and got a Super Nintendo. And I'm like, no, I want more, I want more. And then this continued through high school and through college, and we roll our eyes at kids, but we do the same thing. And my question for you this morning is, have you ever experienced this desire for more? Think about the greatest desire that you had last year. Maybe five years ago. Maybe it was ten years ago. If all that you had was that this morning, would you be satisfied? Think about maybe the deepest desire of your heart that you had when you were a 12-year-old. Or maybe think back to when you were an 18-year-old or maybe a 25-year-old. If you had that deepest desire of your heart at that point, would that make you happy now? Like, think about it. We go into college, and we're looking around, and we're like, man, if I could only have that guy or that girl, and I could get married, I just want more. I, I want that, and then my life would be complete. And then some of us have gone off and gotten married, and you get to a point a few years down the road where you're like, okay, this is good, but, you know, it comes with some other difficulties too. Or some of you are, are looking, you're uh, starting your career, or you're in the middle of your career, and you're looking off, and you're thinking, if I could only have have this promotion, or if I could only have this many clients, or this many contracts, or if I could only bump my pay up 10 or 15,000, only then, I I just want a little bit more, and then uh, it would be, okay, then I would be satisfied. We are people who want far more from life, and we are professionals at at, uh, jumping from obsession to obsession, only to realize that we still want Far more. Wanting far more, I would say, is one of the main storylines of life in America, right? That's kind of a little bit sad, right? So in these verses that were read before, Paul uh, describes that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. And part of me wants to ask you the question this morning, if there was a way for you to end this storyline in your life of wanting far more. If there was a way to end it, would you want to know? Would you want to grab onto it? And then another part of me, I feel like I already know the answer because in seeing how we grasp for bigger houses, newer iPhones, another relationship, more status on social media, or even Paw Patrol toys, it would point to the fact that we are already searching and willing to try just about anything. So these verses that were read before, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing a song to God, kind of an ode to God of sorts. And in this, the Apostle Paul would say, and I would back him uh, in his opinions, he would say that I think what you're looking for when you're looking for more, you're actually looking for the risen Jesus. And what we see in this short song, in one verse, is we see that what Jesus offers to us is one, deeply personal, and what he offers to us is, too, uh, is something that lasts forever. It's something that's deeply personal and lasts forever. So the two things that describe this far more life in Jesus are deeply personal and it lasts forever. And so I want to look at this together with you. And, and look at these verses and look at this, first of all, how this is deeply personal. So I want to read, reread Ephesians 3.20 to you. And we're going to look at this. It says... <clears throat> Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, 
according to the power at work within us. Now, in this verse, Paul claims that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. How in the world could a human like Paul claim that? How could he know that? Or how could we, as people here in the room 2,000 years later, how could we know that that's actually true of God? I would very simply say that we can know that God can do far more abundantly more because he raised his son Jesus from the dead on Easter morning. And that wasn't just a medical miracle, but it was an intentional act to defeat sin and death. And now he is offering it to us in a personal way to experience that power inside of us. And I want to show you uh, uh, the story of the first person that this ever happened to. Okay, her name was Mary Magdalene. You may have heard of her before. Mary Magdalene was a social outcast. She was a nobody in society. She was a woman who had seven demons inside of her and had to have them cast out at one point. And she and Jesus' 12 disciples and a crew of other men and women followed Jesus around in his day. And um, they were kind of his ragtag crew. They were his posse. They weren't rough and tough. They were kind of weak and meek and humble. And so Jesus would, would uh, walk through from town to town and he would teach and heal. And these people would follow him everywhere as he taught and healed. And they would eat with him and they would journey on a road with him. They were walking and talking with him. And these followers, especially Mary Magdalene, if you think about it, she had nothing to bank her life on. She didn't have the blessings of us as America, so she didn't have anything to put this far more hope into other than Jesus. And so Mary Magdalene, along with the the disciples of Jesus, they put all their chips in the basket of Jesus and said, okay, Jesus, you have to be our far far more. So we're just going to stick with you and do whatever you do. But as you follow the story of Jesus, you realize that it kind of takes a turn for the worse, right? That Jesus, during Passover week, uh, this week, some 2,000 years ago, he enters into Jerusalem and he starts doing some teaching. He starts talking to some people and he starts enraging the local leaders, these people who were trying to shut him down and considered him a threat. And he finds himself... You remember the story, Andrew referred to it earlier. He finds himself in a place where uh, he is under arrest and he's put on trial. He's given an unfair trial and then uh, sentenced to death, right? This is the crucifixion story. Jesus is then mocked and, and beaten and he is taken down and then they take him up a hill and he is hung on a wooden cross 2,000 years ago where he dies. He is done. He's dead. Friday, Jesus, Mary Magdalene's hope is dead. On Saturday, it's quiet. He's still dead. I mean, imagine these followers, their hope of far more based on Jesus being with them physically, leading and guiding. That was gone. So as soon as Jesus was taken from them, as soon as he was dead, their hopes were dead. It was completely done. And in John 20, we pick up the scene of that Sunday morning, that Easter morning. It says in John 20, verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So 
She's shocked. She's like, wait, I just wanted to come here and, and observe this. The stone is rolled away. She's like, what is going on? She runs to get Peter and John, two of Jesus' closest friends. And Peter and John run back to the scene. Mary runs back as well. And it says in verse, or in chapter 20, verse 11, it then says, Mary, distraught, her savior, or her, her, her friend and teacher is dead. It says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and she wept. Or as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. I mean, how many times have we been in places where we have put our hope in something and it ultimately just fails? Like either we just can't grasp onto it and it keeps getting out of our reach, or maybe we've attained what we've wanted to, a relationship or a promotion or amount of money, and then we realize, well, this isn't as great as I thought it was. This is the place where Mary is. All of her hopes and dreams are dashed. She's confused here. And then it says in verse 12, in the very next verse, it says, And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Mary did not expect what she saw. She knew her teacher. She knew Jesus to be dead. But in this moment, we see the first of many appearances where Jesus comes face to face with people as the risen Jesus. Now get this. Let's paint this picture for a second. Jesus, the Son of God, had just gone to the cross and died for the sins of the world. He had died for the sins of people like you and I. This cosmic event that would last forever. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, defying physics. And in this victory, he had, he proclaimed a victory over sin and death that day and a victory over Satan. And what was the first thing that he did? Did he send out a tweet to tell everyone about it? Or did he climb up onto a throne and pronounce a grand edict over everyone in this grand cosmic victory? No, the first thing that he does is he walks up to a formerly demon-possessed woman and he calls her by name. Jesus pursues individuals to show them who he is. Now, some of us have stories of when Jesus has done this to us, where he's called us by name in a deeply personal way. For me, uh, I was a kid who grew up in uh, north central Nebraska, and I went to church all the time. I mean, I went to church more often than some of you ate breakfast growing up. I was there all the time. I was reading Bible verses. I was going to Sunday school. I was going to church. I was memorizing verses so much that I was earning trophies for it. I mean, I did all of this stuff growing up, and I prayed a little prayer when I was a five-year-old to ask Jesus into my life. But, but it wasn't until when I was a sophomore, in, or a sophomore in high school as a 16-year-old, almost exactly 22 years ago, 
I went on this spring break mission trip, and I got to go to Mexico with this crew of other high schoolers. And as we were there, we were doing this Bible school with, <clears throat> with uh, Mexican children there. And as we were there, the first night, I saw everyone singing really joyfully. And I was looking around, and people were uh, just hanging out with these kids. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. And the next morning when I got up and I witnessed this again, it was just boom. And Jesus called my name and my eyes were opened in that moment, open to the fact that Jesus didn't want me to to just follow a bunch of rules. He didn't want me to just memorize some verses so I could have uh, some trophies. Jesus was actually calling me into a relationship with him. He wanted me to walk with him. He was empowering me to go love these kids. He had done something incredible in my life and he wanted me to sing genuinely to him, not just sing songs because that's what church people do. Jesus became real to me. The real risen Jesus appeared to me. And as, as I was reflecting on Mary Magdalene and then reflecting on my own life of how this happened, I thought, man, I bet there's a lot of people, uh, just, you know, over a hundred people in this room who probably have a similar story. So I went and started asking her, hey, what's your story? There's a girl, a young woman, our church named Leah. And I said, Leah, how did this happen for you? And, and Leah said, well, so I grew up in this, Leah said, I grew up in this crazy broken home. And she said, when I was growing up, um, Uh, I just felt this incredible sense of pressure that I had to be perfect in every way. And so this weight was on me to be perfect, to be perfect. And then I got to go to this summer camp as an eighth grader. And she said, as I went to this summer camp, uh, for the first, this summer Bible camp, she said, I was sitting down, listening to a speaker, feeling this weight still of, of having to be perfect. And all of a sudden when the speaker is talking, boom, she said, Jesus called out to me and said, Leah, stop trying to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect. I was perfect for you. He said, and for all the times that you haven't been perfect, I forgive you for that. Leah's eyes were opened in a moment, just like Mary Magdalene. And Leah's kind of an all-in girl. She said, and so what happened the next morning is, is I got up and I was like, I talked differently. I dressed differently. I even took my iPod. You guys remember what iPods are? Swift songs. She took her iPod. She said, I erased all the songs off my iPod because I wanted a new life. Imagine how many Taylor Swift songs got erased that day. I mean, she was erasing all of it. And, and then when she got home, she said, I made my dad take me to church because I wanted to experience this Jesus who would call my name. There was another woman that I, in our church uh, that I asked this week named Kim. And I said, Kim, how did this happen for you? And she said, oh, she said, you'd never believe. She said, I re- was raised in this atheist home. I knew nothing about God. I knew nothing about Jesus. And growing up, I was kind of an angry, bitter kid. She's a self-proclaimed. She said, I was a punk in the 80s. She said, I did drugs. I did all sorts of crazy stuff. And uh, she said, when I got into college, I got into this relationship, and I put all my hopes in this relationship. And then as a, a first-year grad student, as a 22-year-old, Kim said, uh, this relationship, the bottom dropped out on it. She said, I was left completely heartbroken, nowhere to turn, uh, nothing to do. And so she goes, as I went back uh, to my room, just devastated, broken, and angry, she said there was a Christian who lived down the hall. She said, this Christian girl came up to me, and she said, Kim, I want to I walk with you, and I want to be here with you. But the reality is, there's a better friend that you need. There's a friend in Jesus who will stick with you forever, and he will never leave. He will give you a new identity, and he will give you the real companionship that you're looking for. 
<clears throat> the resurrected Jesus can take a perfectionist like Leah and tell her, Leah, relax. Like, it's okay. You're not perfect, but I was perfect for you, and I've forgiven you for all those things. He can give her new life and comfort in that. The resurrected Jesus can take an atheist, lonely, heartbroken uh, person like Kim and say, Kim, I've got good news for you. You're not alone. You don't have to journey through this life alone. I want to comfort you. I want to walk with you. I want to be with you. Now, here's the deal. When it comes to Easter Sunday, I I could give some facts. Like, I could tell you that, that Um, Jewish historians that hated the idea of Jesus and the resurrection and Christianity. First century Jewish historians wanted to do everything that they could to squash this, but yet still in the records of Jewish historians, there is no possible way that they can deny the empty tomb. They write about it in their writings. Or I could tell you that in the days and the years following the resurrection of Jesus, you see these writers of the Gospels wrote these stories down and included names like Mary Magdalene and names like uh, Peter and John and Thomas and Cleopas and all these different names of people that saw them. And they included them in there as footnotes, sort of like a, a, a figurative footnote so that if there were people who were reading these texts shortly after this, they could say, oh, I know who kept on. I'm going to go ask him. And the story didn't die. The story kept on going. People kept on testifying. I could give you a few facts like that, but the greatest proof that we have that 2,000 years ago, Jesus resurrected is because for the last 2,000 years, Jesus has been calling millions of names in a deeply personal way, and their lives have been turned completely upside down. And as we sit here today, If you think about it, every other religious leader that started a world religion in the past is sitting with their bones in the grave today. But Jesus rose from the dead, and a few weeks later, he ascended into heaven as King Jesus, and he's been raising spiritually dead people to life for 2,000 years whenever he chooses, right? This morning... Do you find yourself looking for something in this world that that could maybe satisfy you? Have you turned to to finances? Have you turned to to hobbies or or careers or people or, or, or social media to be your far more? Or maybe you're here and you just kind of showed up and you're not looking for more in this place here today. But I think Jesus might be looking for you. I think the resurrection power of Jesus might become personal for you this morning. Is it possible that he's calling out your name as he's called out so many other names? And as for the Christians in the room, there's a few of you who have personally encountered Jesus, right? Yeah, there's a few of you who have seen Jesus, or you have heard the voice of Jesus, and you've seen his work in your life. And the reality is, if we are here in that place this day, this is Resurrection Sunday, and we have a reason to be excited. And we should look back this morning with awe and wonder, remembering that time when Jesus first called us, and having a sense of, wow, Jesus has done this incredible work in my life, and we can center our lives on him. We can live for him. We can rest in the fact that he has satisfied our souls. And can I give you, Christian, one more, uh, uh, one more uh, quick exhortation? That is this. 
In our quest for far more, we have a tendency, even though Jesus has opened our eyes, we have a tendency to try to go back to the tomb for those very things that Jesus has died for, those idols, those addictions, those, those things that we want to grasp, and we're looking for them and trying to go back to them to satisfy them in a way. And could we turn from that this morning and turn to our Jesus who has risen and given us new life? Jesus has come to us in a deeply personal way. Uh, let me highlight one more thing that Jesus has done in this far more life, and that is very simply this. This far more life, it lasts forever, okay? It lasts forever, and this is good news. Verse 21, I'm going to read it to you. It says, this is Ephesians three twenty-one. it says, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now, if there's one thing that's clear about my son Nash's Super Wings toy, Jet, is that earthly fulfillment is short-lived. In his case, three and a half weeks. For us, maybe it's a year or two or three years. That's totally okay. But the essence of this verse is that God is getting glory forever and ever and ever because we have been unified to Jesus and we are going to be with him forever. That relationship never ends. So when Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, he proclaimed in a huge way that death no longer holds me down. Amen? He proclaimed that death no longer holds him down. Therefore, he says to us, if you believe in me, I will be united with you and death will no longer hold you down either. You will be with me forever. You will never experience this kind of death. Now, let me say this. You will die. Don't go running out into Farnham Street and saying, Jared said death doesn't hold me down. I'm going to run out and jump in front of a car. Death will get you if you do that, okay? That's not what I'm talking about here. But listen, this, there's a verse in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, that describes this a little bit more. And it says this. It's a little bit confusing, so stick with me. It says, but in fact, Christ Jesus has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This says that if Jesus has been raised from the dead, which he has been, if his body has been raised from the dead, this is the, the first fruits or a forerunner of what's going to happen for us. So when you trust in Jesus, if you have put your faith in him, just like Jesus' body was raised from the dead, you can know that your body is going to raise from the dead as well. This is going to happen to you. It's a guarantee right here. Now, Jesus stopped breathing. His heart stopped. He physically died. He medically died. And one day, the reality is, is that is going to happen to all of us too. We are going we're going to die. But this far more life from Jesus is that when you trust in him, you can be 100% sure that you will raise to life. Your body with a new glorified body is going to raise to life because that's exactly what Jesus did. And he said that that is only the first truth. That's the forerunner of what's going to happen to you. There is nothing to dread about death. There is nothing to fear about death. Pastor and author Tim Keller said this, He uses this simple illustration. He said, you know, the resurrection is kind of like a receipt. I'm putting this a little bit into my own words, but have have you ever uh, been to Costco uh, and you're aiming to buy like $50 worth of stuff? You go through the checkout and you find out that you bought $450 worth of stuff, like always happens. 
And as you're reeling your oversized cart that's flowing off the edges, you're reeling all of this out, you remember, oh yeah, I better keep my receipt because there's that guy at the end that's going to check with his little marker. And if you don't have your receipt, you're not going to be able to keep what you have. But all you need to have is that receipt. And for me, about half the time, somehow, in that 30-second span, somehow I lose my receipt about every other time I go there. But as you go up there, if you have your receipt, it's a guarantee that you will be able to keep everything in the cart, right? And what Jesus did in dying and raising to life is handing you a receipt. And he says, your sins have been paid for right here. I have raised from the dead to new life. And if you trust in me, you can have this same life. This is your receipt that your sins have been paid for and you will raise from the dead to new life because that's exactly what happened to me. This far more life is one that will never end. It's one that will last forever. And so, friends, could we not sell out to try to find far more in the things of this world that will fade away? And could you give your life to Jesus, the Jesus that comes to us in a deeply personal way, the Jesus that calls us out by name one by one, the Jesus who, who has raised from the dead and is now saying, hey, you can have this new life. You can raise to life with him. This Jesus that offers forgiveness. He offers hope. He offers joy. He offers a new identity. He offers companionship. And he offers that you can experience this new life for him forever and ever and ever. Is Jesus perhaps calling your name this morning? Maybe you've rarely heard about him. Maybe you've heard about him hundreds of times. But maybe it's never been a moment where it's clicked. If Jesus is calling out to you, would you respond to him? Would you turn to him? Would you trust in him? The God who is able to do far more abundantly. Raise Jesus from the dead so Jesus could come to you personally and invite you into this new life. And for the Christians in the room who are here this morning, we read uh, Ephesians 3.21 and it says that God is going to get glory forever and ever. And it's going to happen in the church and it's going to happen through Christ Jesus because we have experienced this new life. And if you have experienced this new life, we have something to be thankful for. And right now we are essentially practicing for the day when we'll see him face to face and we'll be able to sing our brains out. We'll be able to worship him. We'll be able to, to, to love him unhinderedly in that. And this morning when we think back on the resurrection, we have a chance to participate in this fully. So could we worship and celebrate and sing and reflect the fact that he has risen and raised us up to new life? That's something we're singing about, Right? Amen. I'm going to invite our, our communion servers and our band up. And as I do, um, <clears throat> I want to say, if you are in the room this morning, and this is maybe the first time that Jesus has become personal to you. Maybe uh, you have never seen it this way, but all of a sudden you feel like your eyes are open. I want to invite you to do something. 
Every Sunday we take communion and uh, we celebrate the fact that Jesus uh, died on the cross humbly, that his body was broken for us and that his blood was shed for us. That's why we eat the bread and we dip it in the juice. And the beauty of that story is that three days later he rose from the dead to have new life. And the fact is, is this is offered to you. So if Jesus has offered that to you today, we call this a family meal. So we want believers in Jesus to do that. And if this is the first time that it has become real to, uh, to you, could you stand up with the rest of these Jesus followers in the room and come forward and take communion, knowing that that faith is deeply personal and that it will last forever. And if I could ask you to do one more thing, if that is you and you're coming to take communion for the first time as a follower of Jesus, would you tell someone? You could tell me, you could tell the stranger next to you, uh, you could tell the person who you came with, but if Jesus is calling your name, don't silence his voice. Would you come forward and celebrate this communion? And for all of us in the room, this is a wonderful time where we celebrate the humble nature of Good Friday as we take communion. But the reality is that's only a sign of of the victory that Jesus had. And so we celebrate in a great way. And so could you, with a great sense of gratitude, come forward uh, knowing that the risen Jesus has come to you in a deeply personal way and this relationship will last forever? Could you, with great joy, take communion? And could you sing out because God is going to get glory forever? and ever. Could we worship appropriately as people, as the church who have been saved and set apart by him, and now we can worship him freely and fully. Let's worship as we take communion together.